Please be seated. Today's gospel lesson is from one of my favorite parts of John's story. There's almost nothing that thrills me more than tiptoeing into the Chamber of Secrets, that is chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, and just hanging out there, wondering about the meaning and significance in Jesus' words about things like mutual indwelling and glory. But this time around, I learned that I'm mostly used to finding that thrill in the abstract, which is kind of hard to admit. It seems so obvious to me now. So I feel a little awkward and probably even more confounded and churned up. Maybe even a little like the disciples who were sitting there with him in the upper room. You can almost feel their tension. Sure, they're probably pretty well-intentioned just having had a recap of the teachings and mission. But they might also be trying to manage a lot of uneasiness about how the mission of love will fare when it comes to the oppression and violence they live with. Not to mention those scary echoes referring to their beloved leader's imminent and violent end. So at this very moment, in our own time, it's not hard for me, and maybe it's not hard for you either, to imagine sitting among them. Uncertain, yet trying really hard to remain hopeful. Deeply concerned, even alarmed, yet strangely excited at being on the verge of a whole new kind of serenity in response to these words, I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one. There is something very powerful in this talk of mutual indwelling. It's undeniably comforting to think of God dwelling in me, and me in God. And maybe it isn't entirely in the abstract that this comfort exists. It definitely seems that in the personal experience of what Jesus is saying, there can be great comfort and even liveliness and an invitation to newness of life. But I can't deny that it's the words that they all may be one that stop me short. These words insist Gently, but insisting nonetheless that I don't own this indwelling. And so the confusion and the churning up begin inside, but maybe in the best way possible. 
90-year-old Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor claims that if people find their moral beliefs solely by turning inward, they risk losing contact with horizons of significance. That is, the standards of truth, beauty, and moral excellence handed down by tradition, history, and God. God, you say? That's a bold stroke for a philosopher, don't you think? But then he is Canadian, and I, for one, am pretty open to learning a thing or two from our neighbors to the north. You see, the implications of Taylor's hypothesis are incredibly intriguing. Losing contact with horizons of significance can lead to what's called self-created identity and a brand of personal fragility, a state in which one is in constant need of being affirmed by others, and as such, often develops a tendency to see every slight as oppression. And I don't have to tell you how that manifests communally. Identity politics, differing factions locked into what is more and more clearly a fabricated struggle, and one of very questionable necessity and use, the struggle to gain recognition over and against the other or others. The glory that you have given me I have given them so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one. So glory, somehow it's about glory. Glory that's been made available to us. So what is this glory? Is it possible to even say what it looks like or what it feels like? How can we know if we're near it, since helpful throngs of angels aren't always filling the skies above shepherds' heads? Oddly or not, <clears throat> the first thing that popped into my head about knowing something of glory is a sweet little story about William Temple. Maybe some of you have heard it before. He was Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1940s. I mentioned him last time I was up here because he was a great champion of social and economic causes. And very much like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was one of the very few daring Christian leaders to speak out against Nazi atrocities. The story goes like this. In 1931, Temple stood in front of the Oxford University Church of St. Mary the Virgin to lead the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He stopped the assembly before the last stanza and asked them to look at the words of the text. Now, he said, if you mean the words with all your heart, sing them as loud as you can. If you don't mean them at all, keep silent. But if you mean them even a little and want to mean them more, sing them very, very softly and 2,000 voices whispered, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. 
This sounds like something of an understanding of glory. And that 2,000 people were able to gain access through an act so simple and Jesus-y. This shows promise somehow. And here's something else that shows promise too. Last Wednesday evening, our racial justice book group met to continue discussing Fortune by Lisa Sharon Harper. Subtitled, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. The content is very much in alignment with all the works this group has been doing our best to learn from. It is stories about families, not happy stories, and not even always happy families. That evening, however, was one of the tenderest we've ever met in. But because we've been doing so for nearly two years now, it's begun to seem less like we're meeting in a place and more like we are creating one. I, I wish I could make it clear just how filled that space becomes with spirit, with whispered resonances of oneness and even glory. Because we could not escape our own trauma that night, it was absolutely gushing at us from Buffalo and Uvalde. On that particular evening, in our sharing, our realizations and asking questions about the text, there were moments when it all seemed like this strange collection of rags, tattered and fraying at the edges, and it wasn't clear that anything we could say would be terribly useful. There was talk of the personal struggle, the recurring temptation to throw up my hands and flee from the conflict. And there was fatigued resignation, the calling card of COVID tide. But at last, there came a welcome spiritual uptick as one of us almost absently murmured a wish for a clear entry point onto real pathways of helpfulness. <laughs> this too is one thing in the abstract and quite another in practice. And as we spoke about it, we discerned that there may not be perfectly satisfying responses to questions of clear pathways. And yet I found that teasing out the gun issue from the morass swirling in and around matters of racial justice in the U.S. helped at least bring one key element into focus, that piece about differing factions being embroiled in an identity struggle. And even a little drop of clarity in that regard, well, it rubs pretty uncomfortably up against Jesus' lovely words about glory and all of us being one. And so the desire, his desire for us almost becomes the thing I want to throw my hands up and flee from, and that is probably the greatest risk of all. So it's an even greater blessing then to know that this little group exists where our struggles with struggles get gently aired and in the aftermath, sometimes helpful resonances arise.
Resonance is like how it might be God's wish for us to rather than using our precious creative spirit to denounce or express outrage, just be mindful of taking the breaks you need because self-care is paramount. And as you ease back into the fray, be intentional about looking for the next helpful thing to do. Something or somebody could always use a loving hand. And that might be a good start in God's eyes. Trying to get an entire society that's been diabolically manipulated into factions to join together homogeneously. It seems a little daunting, unrealistic even. But maybe what Jesus is trying to say is that our oneness actually operates outside the parameters of social fear factions. Our oneness might be the absolute definition of non-binary. And maybe the glory he speaks about has to do with how we find that out and how what we find is genuinely part of the God of many, many names. Weeks ago, I began the Eucharistic prayer at one of our 6 p.m. services of meditation and sacrament by saying this. Once upon a time, oneness took on separateness in an act of profound love. And because deeper knowledge and understanding of us was and is so tenderly desired, that which created all there is, that which is indivisible and exceeds our capacity to imagine, lived and died as one of us teaching, feeding, and healing all the way. And in the end, we were left not only with gifts of bread and wine that we'll share very shortly, but the spirit to rhythmically return to this very place and remember it all again and again. Jesus dared to suggest that we can be one. In his day, the same way it is in ours, that was a challenging prospect. But he spoke of it nonetheless. And maybe because times were fraught and he knew they'd always be, the most significant thing about this gospel moment is how he made such daring remarks about oneness using the format of prayer. And that too is where the glory dwells that he has given us. Know this about your own prayer life, however it may be shaped, in conversations, in voting booths, in donating to worthy causes and in friendship. And do, 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 come to this table
and see how strengthening it can be. Amen.